Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Big shout out to our awesome Patreon supporters, Brial, Jonathan, Rende, Brent, Kevin, Holly, Ryan, Blair, Julia, Shayna, and Bill. You all are awesome. Thank you so much for your support. I'm able to do a lot with a little uh, since I'm matching your funds if not surpassing them uh, every month. I'm able to keep the podcast afloat and start to work on public archaeology projects. If you haven't heard it already, listen to the previous episode, number 52, about the public archaeology dig at the Moseon Insight. It was a really fun project, and I hope to do more of them. Uh, if you support Go Dig a Hole at any level on Patreon, you get a sticker. Uh, designed by Derek Walker, who's the graphic designer behind uh, the Nike SB line. Super awesome guy. Uh, really great work. Couldn't be happier with the logo. Uh, if you're new to Patreon and you haven't gotten your sticker yet, uh, hang tight. It's coming in the mail. I've been traveling a lot uh, the past couple months, so uh, I'm a little behind on shipping them, but they are coming in the mail. Don't worry. You can support Go Dig a Hole without paying anything just by sharing the podcast or social media with your friends, coworkers, classmates, dig partner, teacher, or the person who helps check you for ticks. By the time you're hearing this, I'm at the Great Basin Anthropological Conference in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's November 7th to 9th, I believe. I'll be around a little bit after too for... Uh, some business meetings. But if you're in Salt Lake City for the conference, or if that's just where you are, uh, please reach out. I'd love to meet up and hear about what you're up to. This is a fun episode where I have Lewis Bork and Dave Witt joining for a portion of the show to talk about tattoos, what it's like to be a tattooed person in archaeology, and the uh, culture and history behind tattoos. Stay tuned for another segment with tattoo artist Rose Gilfoyle as we chat about uh, what tattoos mean to her on the other side of the tattoo machine. Um, so on the line we've got uh, Lewis Bork and Dave Witt. And uh, Lewis, you're in Amsterdam? Yeah, so I'm in the, uh, the Netherlands. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm about, uh, sorry, my, my sound cut out, but I'm about 20 minutes south of Amsterdam at the, this place called the University of Leiden. Very cool. Uh, and so what do you primarily do uh, in archaeology? Oh, um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of a jack of all trades in, in some aspects. Um, regionally, I've uh, actually started out mostly doing work in the American Southwest, but um, over here I'm also doing, uh, while continuing my Southwest stuff, I'm also doing a lot of Caribbean archaeology now as well. And um, I, I kind of do a lot of, uh, I don't know, digital humanities uh, type approaches, so I do a lot of spatial and, and network analysis, but um, I try to integrate that with a, a with a lot of um, public outreach oriented or public archaeology oriented uh, work so I do uh, like you know, essays for places like the conversation and sapiens and stuff yeah that's awesome and do you also um, focus on uh, anarchist studies yeah yeah so I'm uh, part of a group that's been trying to get uh, 
I don't necessarily want to say uh, pushing an anarchist perspective, but at least getting people to recognize how they've been implicitly drawing on it for uh, quite a while. And, and um, some of it is, you know, helping to inform perspectives and trying to understand, for me at least, uh, trying to understand how people organize outside of states and then also reevaluating um, uh, periods that have been traditionally termed uh, collapse or post-classic, things like that, to uh, see if, if there isn't some sort of uh, intrinsic bias in archaeological interpretation where we're actually seeing these things as as not purposeful and maybe we're actually misrepresenting or misidentifying uh, social movements looking at pulling apart hierarchy in uh, the archaeological record. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Uh, I've done some work uh, with the Maya for a number of years and uh, I've seen kind of... Uh, the anarchist perspective starting to creep into questioning, um, you know, the, the collapse of the classic period. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's even, you know, it's interestingly starting to creep into, uh, how people look at, you know, the quote unquote paleolithic or archaic periods as well. Cause, uh, there's kind of this idea that, uh, prior to the emergence of hierarchy and inequality and all that, there's people were just sort of easily egalitarian, <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, I think we're recognizing now that it's it's really it's really hard to uh, to to be equitable even in, in you know smaller uh, social groups. So it's uh, we're trying to reevaluate even going back even further. That's very interesting. We'll have to have another conversation about that um, to really take a deeper dive on it. Yeah, you bet. And uh, Dave, you're in New York. Yep, I'm in Buffalo right now. Awesome. Thanks for uh, taking the time, uh, both of you guys, for uh, you know joining the podcast today. Dave, I know you're at the uh, New York Archaeological Conference the, this weekend. Actually, I ended up um, canceling that trip, so no worries about that. Uh, <laughs> it, meetings with work ended up um, being canceled on me, so it was really hard for me to justify driving five hours for another meeting. Yeah, yeah. So, Death by meetings is a thing. Um, so... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your background, Dave. Okay, well, uh, professionally, my day job, I'm a tribal liaison for a state agency, and about half of my duties for that is actually reviewing CRM reports and uh, working with the nations uh, here in, the, in New York to identify any areas of concern, um, uh, questions that they have, and try to work in a collaborative manner to, to address those concerns. Um, and this goes from, you know, phase one reports all the way up to phase three mitigation and alternative mitigation techniques. Um, academically, my background is also in the Southwest, where I've done studies on uh, kind of the opposite of what Lewis has done. I've looked at what I would like to uh, uh, portray as more hierarchical organizations involving Chaco. Um, so... Uh, particularly when we're looking at the middle San Juan region along the uh, rivers up there in Farmington, Aztec, you know, that area. Um, so. And then a side project that I've somehow become associated with um, has been with soundscapes and phenomenology. Uh, we, a colleague and I, have been working on creating a toolbox for GIS that would model the extent of sounds over a cultural landscape and then uh, that would allow us to ask questions regarding relationships between place and space and sound and uh, how these may inform 
uh, cultural interpretations and all that fun stuff. Wow, that's that's super interesting. And it's neat that uh, you guys have very different perspectives on studying the the Southwest. It's it's cool to have, you know, both of those um, perspectives reflected here. Yeah, the nice thing is we're in conversation too. So <laughs> Dave and I have uh, have have talked about this and, and then also are, are, I'm involved in a, in a book that uh, Dave's editing. So it's, uh, we both have kind of spun ideas around each other. Yeah. That... And, uh, yeah. It's been very interesting. I've actually drawn a lot from Lewis's thinking about some stuff and um, we'll see if I can incorporate it in the future. Um, but it's, it's pretty eye opening. I'm trying to reframe things and, uh, look at the same archaeological evidence and ask questions like, well, what does it mean if you interpret it through this different theory and um, just trying to be open-minded about stuff. That's awesome. So we are all archaeologists with tattoos and we all have interests in the history and cultures and personal meanings and experiences around tattoos. Um, and I'm sure uh, it's it's been experienced differently at, for each of us as a uh, you know, tattooed people. Um, so I, I guess a starting point is let's talk about our, our tattoos. Um, for me, I got my first tattoo, um, when I was in my late twenties and it was on my thigh and, um, it's, it's a tattoo of a, a mountain and a skull and kind of stratigraphic layers behind the skull and under the mountain and then a a rose at the bottom and it's all in black work um with a little bit of different styling there and it, it's it's large but it was in a place that was easily covered and um the meanings behind it to me personally were the 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 mountains are just a a special landscape to me i've spent um i would say a majority of my life now in mountainous areas and you know whether that's living or or you know just spending recreational time or working uh in mountains it's been you know a pretty significant part of my life and the skull of course you know it's a very striking image um it's i've i've played in metal bands you know metal has been a, an aggressive you know it's an aggressive kind of music and, and it's a striking image as, as common in metal, but also as an archeologist, you know, there's so much that you can tell about, uh, a, a person or, you know, the, the ancestors of humans, uh, through skulls. So it's, it's an important part. And then the, the stratigraphic levels behind it give context and meaning to the whole thing. And then the, the rose being a black rose is also a, a symbol of resistance, but it's also the symbol of, you know, love and family. So that, that was kind of what I started with. And I have, uh, two other large tattoos, um, one on each arm that go from basically above the shoulder to a little bit below the elbow. And one is a, an octopus taking down a ship in stormy seas. And the other is a red-tailed hawk and a coral snake battling to the death. Um, and, you know, those are longer stories but with both of those. But uh, I got those when I moved uh, to Portland a, a few years ago. And 
kind of me choosing a, a more visible tattoo, like a more visible location for a tattoo also, um, sh- coincided with changes in my life that, you know, made it more acceptable for me to have visible tattoos and also have, you know, kind of more striking tattoos. Um, and I think that it coincided with kind of where I am now too, like not, not just as a person, but like, uh, you know, geographically, um, it's, it's not, you know, something that I have to be as careful with. Um, and also, you know, I think over time tattoos have just become a thing where it's just not a big deal anymore. Uh, and it, it kind of used to be, uh, what about you guys? Well, um, I have three, I actually got my first one, uh, when I was in field school in Denmark back in 2002. And that is on my left arm. It's of a werewolf with Nordic runes. Um, I've got one on my back shoulder. And then the latest one I have is actually on my right calf. And that's, uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Heilestead Stave Church that was up in Norway. Um, but it was a church that had uh, the... Sigurd uh, saga uh, represented and carvings along both sides of the doors, the lentil piece, basically. And so I took the scene where Sigurd was slaying the dragon Fafnir, and I had that basically put on my skin. Um, And that's a pretty sizable piece, probably eight inches or so by six um, on my calf. Um, So when it comes to... uh, hiding them or anything like that. Um, you know, if I wear shorts or something around work, they show. Um, but other than that, the other two don't. So I don't really have an issue with uh, visibility. No one's really said anything about my ink. Um, oddly enough, I had someone actually talk to me about uh, an earring I have in my upper right uh, helix. So um, that, was, that was interesting. I was actually in the field for uh, cultural resource work. And we just got on the discussion of, um, you know, um, yeah. tattoos and piercings and other visible stuff. And I was saying, oh, at some point I would like to have an industrial piercing in my left ear. And the woman who was crew chief at the time basically said, well, you know, you want to be careful about that because that's taken into consideration. And I I would probably hesitate to hire someone that has a piercing like that visible. And like, or do you not see the piercing I have in my right ear? Um, <laughs> and she just had completely glossed over. I mean, it's a ring with a captured uh, ball in it. So it's, it's, it's there. I don't hide it or anything. I don't really call attention to it, but it, I think um, like piercings, tattoos are gotten to the point where people just kind of forget them after they see them. And it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah, there's been, uh, so I'm in my 40s, um, and I got my first tattoo at, at 18, and, and it's been uh, an accretion, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> since then. But um, I was also a non-trad uh, student moving into into archaeology, and I, I kind of had a, a one or two careers prior to uh, moving into uh, this more kind of career or professional-oriented realm and and most of them uh tattoos are actually much more uh, acceptable I, one of them I, I ran a nightclub in 
in uh, Madison, Wisconsin for for years, and I uh, worked in uh, as a DJ at uh, through raves in like the the mid and late '90s and in uh, in the Midwest. And so, at you know, in, in those contexts, uh, it, having uh, a lot of visible tattoos on your arms uh, was still wasn't at that point in time uh, extremely common. But in those contexts, you didn't stand out, right? Um, but I still didn't actually move down onto um, under my lower arms, I think until, uh, I guess maybe, maybe about 20 years ago now. So I guess it was pretty quick, but, uh, it, it, it's definitely been, uh, an interesting transition into, you know, I've been in archeology span since uh, 2005, so 13 years or, or so. And it, uh, it, when I, when I first started, I always felt like the, uh, uh, the greaser in the, in the uh at the cocktail party you know um and i always uh, at, at this point as long as i have a long sleeve shirt on pants and and i have a a shirt that buttons up all the way to my neck uh i'm i'm pretty covered i've got larger plugs in my ears i've taken out most of my piercings except for those uh so that those are kind of hard to hide giant holes in your head but yeah um yeah but yeah otherwise you know, it's been uh, sort of a survival instinct. And there's, you know, being a first-gen PhD coming from a working-class uh, background, there's a whole lot of stuff in the academy that uh, people don't really tell you about. Although there is actually a really good uh, kind of open-sourced, crowd-sourced uh, how to survive at the the academy if you're from a, a working-class, a lower-class background. Uh, if you Google it, it'll it'll pop up. This uh, um, woman at, at University of New Mexico put it together, and it kind of blew up. It's like 250 pages now, or something. Wow. Uh, but that's I definitely about that, that like 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would have been nice, <laughs> but it's been you know even since I started in archaeology, the transition in the U.S. I should add, or in North America at least, uh, has it's been a radical shift. Uh, in terms of how many people and how common it is to see uh, tattoos and the transition from the people who used to harass you uh, not having tattoos, police, uh, to to it being a, a, a common thing to, to run across police and military members now with uh, tattoos, I think is really a, a, a pretty dramatic bellwether of uh, that shift and how normalized tattoos have become, especially in the last five years or so. But it's still... Um, you know, not as common in, in, in uh, the academic circles. It's definitely more common in the uh, federal and, and contract worlds that I've worked in as as well. But in the Netherlands, it's like the, the U.S. in uh, 1995 in terms of how many people have, have tattoos. So I, I'm certainly the only person with uh, visible tattoos in, in my faculty, and it's one of the, uh, you know, largest... Um, archaeology faculties and on the continent (laughs) (laughs) that was a surprise yeah well have you have you felt you know in in your time as a as a tattooed person and and coming through academia and and other you know uh work that you've done in archaeology have you found that having tattoos or you know having visible tattoos has affected the way that people perceive you or your your opportunities to you know kind of hold the same space well dave you want to take that first yeah and i 
I, do, I also come from a lower class background, lower middle, maybe. Um, and so I guess it's somewhat easier for me to relate to people I may come across in the field, especially in a CRM context, um, than some of the more academic-minded people, not to speak ill of anyone. Um, but for me, you know, tattoos have been an icebreaker. Um, I, I can use that as a way to start a conversation with someone or it makes that individual more comfortable with me and it human, humanizes me despite letters after my name. Um, this has even been the case with me and my older brother. Um, so the idea of a tattoo being a negative thing, it, it can happen in the academic context or the professional context. And so that's why I would not wear shorts around you know, certain people that I work with. But when it comes to uh, just working in the real world, uh, it's it's been a positive thing, a net positive. So, yeah, I I mean I I I have no uh, regrets towards them, and I I keep telling my wife that I wanna I need to get a, a, a like I'm a, an assistant professor over here at at uh, the Faculty of Archaeology, but it's um, the way these positions translate, I'm more like a visiting assistant professor and uh, with voting rights in the in the U.S. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so I keep telling her that I need a tenure track job so I can move I can move past my uh, onto my hands and onto my neck. <laughs> but it's uh, I think it like Dave was saying. I mean, you know, that's one of the more regular conversations I have when I because uh, I have a, a number of I don't know how many tattoos I have anymore because they've individual <laughs> ones have morphed into large sleeves, uh, and then I have some that are probably better to think of in terms of. Uh, like my whole back's covered, you know, in terms of space taken up. Yeah. Um, but it, it certainly uh, facilitates that sort of humanization that, that Dave was talking about. And with uh, with students in particular, I think that helps a lot. Not necessarily with uh, colleagues, certainly not colleagues who are um, closing on retirement age, some of them, but not not all. Yeah, it's interesting that you guys both have that experience because I've that's been my experience as well. And... Um, my first ever CRM job, uh, my my boss, who you know became a gr great mentor and friend, um, had a couple tattoos, but they weren't visible. And you know, I was considering tattoos at the time, and and he advised against it. And uh, his advice was, and this was in Kentucky, where you know culture is a, a lot more conservative than it is in in other areas. So um, his reasoning for it was you know, if you can cover it, sure, go for it. But um, there could be a time down the road where that might close doors for, you know, making a sale or, you know, getting, you know, access to an area or something like that. And so, you know, years later, uh, end up with, you know, you know, visible tattoos whenever I have short sleeves on. And um, the first time that I noticed that it it opened doors for me in the context of me working as an archaeologist was when I was working with um, the Karuk tribe in Northern California. And, uh, you know, one of the guys there, you know, he sees me come in and I'm, I'm dressed kind of nice because uh, I had to give a presentation to, you know, the tribal council and, uh, you know, some of the decision makers there. And 
you know, he sees me come in and he's like, oh, there's this guy from Portland coming down, you know, and we ended up sitting and having beers and talking. And he said that, um, you know, the reason why he kind of gave me this, the space to talk was because of my tattoos. And he said that, you know, it, it, you know, made me seem like a normal person. And I was like, well, yeah, I, I am a normal person. Um, but yeah, that's also been my background too. Like my, my family, as far back as we know, have all been in the military and it's, you know, kind of a working class background. And I was also a non-traditional student. Um, and, you know, even my circuitous path through archaeology has involved me working in bars a lot. And, you know, those are places like you had mentioned, Lewis, uh, where it's it's almost odd not to have tattoos, uh, especially visible yeah. ones. Um, yeah. So it's it's neat how it opens doors. And, you know, and it it as I've moved to different places, you know, moving from Kentucky to Oregon, uh, it's just one of those things uh, like you had mentioned, Dave, like nobody even thinks twice. Like you don't even really notice it. It's just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Just another person with tattoos. <laughs> and I I guess I want to take a step back myself. And it's like personally, my opinion with tattoos is if you're thinking about one, don't just rush out and get it. Think about yeah. it long and hard, get something you want, research your artist so that you know that they can do the style that you're envisioning. Talk with them. Don't just plump down the money and sit in the chair. Um, and, you know, do your research and all that. And I hope nothing that I'm saying is going along the lines of, oh, yeah, tattoos are great. Go and get one right away. It's, you know, do your homework first. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd also, um, I 100% agree with that. And put put your money down on it. Don't get a don't get a cheap one unless you yeah. really want the uh, the jail uh, the jailhouse tattoo experience. Um, <laughs> or you know you're working with people like Aaron Dieterwolf and and uh, and he's uh, using obsidian blades to to grind uh, uh, ink into you at one of the archaeology conferences or something. But oh, um, I can't imagine someone doing that. <laughs> yeah, I think Aaron has a few now. That's uh, maybe I should plug him and Lars. Krudak have a book called Ancient Ink. It's about uh, 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 tattooing in, in the archaeological record that uh, I just finished reading a few months ago. It's pretty good. But they had uh, Aaron's been tattooing himself with a lot of uh, traditional tattoos. But that's actually one thing that I've avoided. I've I've kind of tried to focus on if I do have traditional tattoos. I don't mean like old school, you know, sailor tattoos, but um, like traditional cultural tattoos that I focused mostly on uh, cultures that I have a, a personal ancestral connection to, I guess. And I, originally I wasn't going to do that. And I, I, I would have had my whole right sleeve would have been um, pottery designs from the Southwest. And I'm glad I ended up not uh, doing that because the type of work, uh, the type of work I do is fairly collaborative and, uh, and it would have felt a bit more appropriative than, Oh yeah, uh, it's and, funny that you mentioned that because I was thinking about doing the exact same thing back in about 2010, 2013, and it was gonna be an armband of a design that was found on a pot at one of our sites over there, um, and I just I couldn't get over the idea that I was misappropriating that culture, that that wasn't my heritage, that I need to stick to my own heritage on it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like that's, you know, this gets into a whole uh, conversation on cultural appropriation that uh, probably is, is sidetracking a bit, but I have no problem with people uh, doing that. I just always felt uncomfortable uh, personally with it. And I actually have uh, a pottery design that a friend of mine uh, who's Ho-Chunk had, had done, and, and I'm questionable on that because it's a Pueblo design uh, by, you know, someone from a, a Suan descent. So it's, <laughs> that'll, that'll probably get covered up here fairly, fairly soon. I think I've, and that's the other thing is, you know, even if you get a bad tattoo or a tattoo that you get bored of, you can, you can always get another tattoo on top of it. I think I have three cover-ups at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, when I was getting, so both of my arms were done by uh, the same woman. Her name is Rose Guilfoyle. And uh, I'm actually going to do a, a segment with her because she she works with traditional methods and styles, um, like stick mm-hmm. and poke. And Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was on, you know, tattoo number three with her, uh, I, I started talking about, you know, like, well, tattoos often have a, a very serious personal meaning to a lot of people. And, sh- and she, she stops and she goes, you know what? Tattoos don't have to mean anything. You can just get them because yeah, yeah, they're cool. cool. And yep. that changed my perspective on it. And I was like, oh yeah, you totally can just get a tattoo because it's, it's cool or, you know, it's just <laughs> what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, I had I I would say probably only about half of my tattoos have um, personal meaning, and some of them are related to uh, life histories, and some of them to uh, belief systems and landscapes, and uh, but others are just like I want that, <laughs> <laughs> or I or you know it, it, it more especially as there's been a, a massive explosion of uh, incredibly talented uh, tattoo artists globally in the last uh, ten years too. Yeah, uh, I think that Instagram in some level has really helped to uh, facilitate. Um, it's uh, I think there's a, a lot more of a collector's a- aesthetic than there there used to be within uh, the tattoo community. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen that as well. And for me, my three tats are all um, personally meaningful. And I have in mind for a fourth one that actually would be the first one I have visible on my lower arm um, that it's been something I've been considering for a year and I keep getting drawn back to the idea. So I think I'm going to do it at some point sooner or later. Um, but it's, I mean, for me, I take that approach that, yeah, this is something that's personally meaningful for me because I've, I've got to live with it for a good long period. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I completely understand that other people like collecting them and I have no, um, you know, ill will against that at all. I the tattoos are addictive. Um, so yeah. I get that. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to do it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's, it's funny you mentioned cultural appropriation cause there are, you know, I, I think some aspects to consider of, uh, you know, which tattoos you get, um, you know, where they are like, you know, like face tattoos in, you know, traditional cultural styles, you know, are, um, you know, very important to the members of those cultures. And it's one of those things that, you know, you can't just casually get. Um, but also kind of the the odd intersection with, with privilege is weird because it, it kind of, I don't know if, if, if it necessarily cuts both ways because, you know, like it's, it's, um, 
it's definitely something that people of, you know, the, the middle and working classes have, you know, more tattoos than those in the upper classes. Um, but it also takes, you know, kind of someone who can have the access to opportunity, you know, to have tattoos, um, you know, so that's something that I would, I would say, you know, to be careful of in advising, you know, maybe an early career archaeologist who doesn't have the same kind of freedom of, of mobility through the profession, you know, maybe, uh, you know, consider where it is and, yeah, you know, kind of hold off until you do have, you know, some sense of security in, you know, your ability to kind of control your own destiny. There's a, there's a, a blog post I keep meaning to write on, on tattoo placement, essentially in, you know, uh, Western, mostly American, uh, society. And it's, it's, there's a really interesting, uh, set of studies that people have done looking at, at placement. And so I a hundred percent agree with you, but there's been a really strong shift where, um, tattoos were almost always done on, uh, the upper thighs and the torso, maybe moving on to the, uh, like a, the short sleeve, uh, on the arm. Uh-huh. And that whole thing was filled in before you started moving down the arm and down the legs. And so if you had people you know, naked or in their underwear uh, from the up until about the 1980s, that was where most tattoo placement uh, was. From the 2000s onward, it's been much more of a uh, display-oriented tactic. And so you actually have uh, people where their torsos and their upper legs are bare, and they just have full sleeves on their like lower legs and on their on their arms, and that's no critique on on them. It's just there's been a pretty dramatic shift on uh, cultural meaning yeah. uh, for tattoos, where they went from a lot more personal to a lot more of a, a, a kind of social text, not yes. to fall into semiotics or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, the tattoo artists I've worked with uh, have both said. Uh, that it's odd to notice the shift in placement, you know, from from them as people who have worked in that profession for you know decades, to yeah. see people come in for their first tattoo and it's on their hand, and yeah. and they're oh. just kind of like, you're gonna really you're gonna start there. Uh, I mean, I'm not gonna talk you out of it, but uh, it's just odd. Yeah, yeah, and actually, a lot of tattoo artists, um, a lot of the ones I've I've gone to often will have a policy where they. Um, Hands, I think they're they're still willing uh, to do, but certainly face. Uh, they they require people to have uh, most of their uh, torso tattooed and their arms tattooed before they'll do their uh, their face, which they call job killers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've the last artist I went to actually had that policy, and it was out there on a sign and basically stating that they wouldn't do someone's first tattoo and um, on the hands or face or neck. So. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, what about, uh, kind of Lewis, you had mentioned, uh, that book, ancient ink tattooing and the archeological record. What do you guys know about, uh, kind of the, the history and, uh, you know, practice of tattoos in, in other cultures? They, so it's, you know, the oldest, uh, evidence of tattoos we have is still Utsi, I think the, that, um, 
Ice Mommy from up in uh, Tyrol near the Italian and Austrian border. Yeah. It's like 5,300 years old or something like that. And um, and I have a, a pretty strong connection to that because part of my family is from that very valley where they where they found him. Uh, and uh, so it's it's you know it's been an interesting to study him and see kind of the pattern of potential uh, behavior, motor behavior that, and even uh, rationality or reasoning behind why those tattoos exist. Now they're talking about them as potential uh, um, uh, forms of, uh, you know, medicine. And, uh, but it's so hard to find <laughs> evidence of uh, uh, tattoo practices because they bleed into, no, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> they bleed into so many other types of uh, archaeological evidence. So in the, uh, the Hohokam area, where I also work in the Southern American Southwest, um, in the, the, the descendants of the Hohokam, the Autumn, a lot of the, their tattoos were done with the dried tips of uh, agave, you know, those super needle sharp points that they have. Oh, yeah. And then other areas that use uh, things like uh, porcupine quills and stuff as well. So that that just the only the only thing you end up finding sometimes is like the holders that they'd make with them on a rodent bone or something that would have uh, textile wrapping the the or uh, tying the tip to it. But Aaron's been uh, Aaron uh, Deerwolf has been looking at or trying to figure out whether a lot of the um, he's been focusing on obsidian, but a lot, whether a lot of these uh, blades that you find uh, use wear on, but not a lot of use wear, may have actually been, he's arguing may have actually been related to uh, tattoo making processes where they do cuts instead of uh, uh, stick and poke. Interesting. Yeah, and so he's been doing, I think, uh, oh, now I don't remember the the studies that he's been doing, but they've been looking for evidence of uh, essentially human DNA and in, in any of the residues found on these. That's very cool. I'm going to have to check that book out. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, him and Lars both do some interesting stuff, but it's, I had started looking into uh, focusing on the, the Southwest cause that's, uh, you know, the primary area I work in I had started looking into it a lot more, but it's so, uh, you know, how people interact with tattoos is so culturally specific. And, and by the time when the Spanish showed up, you know, all these early kind of um, historic uh, eth ethnographies that we have, or these kind of ethnographic historic sources that we have, they may briefly mention uh, that groups had tattoos, but there's almost no discussion except for in like three uh, sources of how it, how they came about. And then, you know, through the, the whole, uh, uh, process of colonial invasion and and cultural uh, violence that was going on. A lot of these tattooing processes were or practices were were lost by uh, contemporary groups as as well. Yeah. So I actually did a little bit of uh, research in the past few days just to make sure I was up to date on this. And Science Alert actually had released a, um, a publicity thing uh, four days ago on. A uh, female mummy that was recovered about four years ago um, from a tomb in Luxor in Egypt, and uh, this uh, woman had um, glyphs and um, you know uh, raw eyes, I believe, or horse eyes, tattooed on her, and they're still visible because the skin 
at least on this torso, the, the torso was what was remaining of the mommy. Um, you know, that's still visible. And uh, it's interesting. Um, that got me thinking more about the Egyptian practices. And um, apparently that was limited to women. That's all the evidence that they have for tattooing was on women. And it could be related to the priestly class there um, as a sign of office or dedication or something along that line. Um, but that's, that seems to have a, a very different way or sign uh, from some other interpretations I've seen where, um, you know, people are saying that this is um, some type of social identification or they're signifying something. I mean, at least with this, we've got a very, very good clue on a very specific, you know, practice and what that does signify as opposed to just this. Um, hints that we get otherwise. That is really interesting to think of uh, tattoos marking a very specific class, in that case, um, the priest class. Um, and I guess we can look at other examples of you know, tattoos marking a, a very specific class, like you uh, look at uh, the Yakuza-style tattoos in, in Japan, and you know, it's kind of a, a marker of, of belonging to, you know, a a specific group, um, you know, and contrast that by, uh, looking at, you know, Russian prisoner tattoos and, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of a whole set of, of meaning behind the placement and the symbols that are, um, you know, visible on, you know, Russian prisoners. It, it kind of speaks a language of, of its own. Yeah. It's really, it, it's really kind of a, a visual medium or media that, that kind of, I guess it's a scalar uh, practice where at some levels it's ex exclusionary, right? You're, especially in, in the contemporary world, you're, you're, as you uh, kind of make these visible to other people within society, you become set off a bit, but it's also inclusive in, in a way that it, it helps you kind of perform, you know, inclusion with these other kind of subcultural groups or, or, uh, I don't know, countercultural groups, I guess as well. I don't know. What, I don't think uh, that works for the Russian mob to call them countercultural. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's one of the things I was thinking about too at, earlier on in this uh, discussion when we're, when we're talking about this, because, you know, culturally, one of the things that we see in the U S is these don't really, uh, you know, in some ways, maybe they signify kind of a, a coming of age thing. You get your first tattoo; it hurts like hell. Uh, a lot of people never get another tattoo again after uh, after that. But in a lot of other places, there it's you know, a lot of other cultural contexts. It's very much um, not even a, a pastime that you want to participate in. It's just something that you have to do to to communicate something to other people in society. Whether it's that you're a certain age or like you guys are talking about, whether you're a part of a particular class within society. So I had a question that's on a related topic, but may not be. And apparently there's this idea, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, archaeologists have found ceramic figurines dating to um, it's the Neolithic and Calcolithic periods. And these ceramic fi uh, figurines are in the shape of women, female figurines, and they have patterns on the body. Um, and people are interpreting these to be 
uh, potential evidence of tattooing at that point in time, which would be, you know, a couple thousand years before Uzi. Um, but then they're also taking that same type of uh, metaphor and extending it to pottery decorations, just pottery in general, and how um, if one interprets pottery as a human um, with like the main being as well uh, and all that, that decorations on the surface of the pottery could be interpreted to be the type of tattooing, which may have led to tattooing of human beings. Um, and I personally don't know how I feel about that. I haven't given that a lot of thought or research. So I was wondering if you guys have heard about that. And if so, what your uh, thinking is. Uh, Lewis, you want to go for that one? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, you know, kind of pots as people and, uh, um, yeah, there's like pots, but it, you know, I honestly, I don't, I don't not buy it to go full academic, you know, and, and uh, refuse to say you agree with something. I don't disagree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sounds it sounds completely plausible to me. You know, depending on the cultural context, like a lot of the stuff that uh, I work with in the in the Southwest, we know there's like a really strong connection uh, between um, pots and uh, pit houses, as an example. Uh, just because of the, you know, there's the strong kind of intercorrelated material connection between what makes up both of them. And and then there's a whole lot of really great uh, um, discussions by some amazing indigenous scholars like uh, um, um, uh, Rena Swenzel, who she's talking about how um, these structures are essentially, um, uh, you know, mothers to uh, these households and there it's like another in a lot of ways the the dirt is 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 flash and it's you know kind of an embodiment of uh a, or a broader idea of of what humanity is so it doesn't i think go outside of uh what we know about people to have them uh connect themselves to material objects or to uh give animacy or humanness to material objects i mean we certainly know that's the case so i can i can definitely see how that you know, that practice of uh, decorating ceramics would then transition into decorating people in a similar way. I'd buy it. Yeah, that's one of those interesting, uh, you know, which came first kind of questions. Um, there's there's a lot of that in archaeology. Uh, one of my favorite which came first questions is around um, uh, fermenting beverages. Uh, is, oh, you yeah. know, like what... <laughs> did uh the fermented drink happen first or did agriculture happen first and uh was it was did agriculture happen to make the fermented beverages and then you know like uh cereal yeah. grains as as food came after or you know which one happened first yeah as a home brewer that's also one of my favorite questions <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome uh there's uh there's that series from dogfish head the the ancient ales uh that yeah. explores you know a lot of different archaeological methods uh for brewing uh that's a lot of fun to kind of <laughs> try to replicate in a homebrew setting and they they work with um uh with archaeochemists as well don't they yes yeah i can't remember his first name but uh, mcgovern uh is the archaeologist that does a lot of the work uh with dogfish head yeah i think he's out of pennsylvania i may be making that up I, I for some reason i think out of pennsylvania they also if i remember correctly have done work with Hershey and Hershey has a fantastic lab that's um, 
you know, they've also helped trace the origins of cacao that's, you know, the remains of cacao that's been found in the Southwest. So, um, that was my, that was my first project in undergrad. It was, I was working for Patty Crown at UNM. And so I processed the samples to send to, to Hershey. Very cool. Nice. Yeah. So there's been, um, there's that kind of cyclical question is one that it'd be, it'd be interesting to, to see answered. I worked with uh, Frances Hayashida down in Peru, and she was doing a lot of uh, ethnoarchaeological work with uh, homebrewers there as well. Well, you know, I don't know what you would call it, ethno ethnobrewers. <laughs> uh, but looking at you know the production of chicha and and uh, seeing how connected that was to what we're seeing chemically in the past and stuff. It's and from my understanding, I had this is. Uh, a decade, easily a decade ago, I think longer. I'd done a, a a paper in undergrad looking at the origins of alcohol, and I thought some of the earliest ones we had were pre uh, pre domestication, and they just have like pretty much anything with sugar thrown in. But yeah. that probably has changed dramatically since then. Yeah, it wasn't the original idea that a lot of these uh, the non domesticated plants, the sugar levels were so low that they wouldn't actually become alcoholic right my um, first experiments in alcohol brewing was with mead and the idea behind that was that that's that's something that could ferment naturally all you have to do is have honey mixed with water in an open container yeah uh, so you know if there's a divot in a tree or something like that underneath a bee's hive you easily could get fermentation going on there now you gotta you gotta wonder who the first person to decide to drink out of the <laughs> yeah it's also neat to think that you know for in most of the world uh water has been one of the more dangerous things that you could drink so yeah. I, I wonder if they were just looking for any alternative and you know if it smelled funky then it smelled funky in the right way then maybe it was safe to drink yeah. um so i guess to close it out uh the last question i have for you guys is what's your favorite tattoo oh of ours, of our own, or of things that we've seen and you know on others. Oh, uh, I I was thinking of your own, but uh, if if you have an example of another one, then uh, yeah, let's hear that. Well, my undergrad advisor, Leslie Cecil, uh, she's a Mayanist, and she has this fantastic um, glyph of the Mayan word for cacao tattooed on her ankle. Nice. I uh. I just, I just got got one uh, a couple months ago, two months ago. So at the moment, I think that's <laughs> that's my that's my favorite tattoo, and it was a big cover up on my on my on my left leg. It was this uh, by this uh, Syrian guy up in Amsterdam named uh, Hassam, and he's got a um, a independent studio up there called Hysteria Inc. It's, he's quite a a wonderful artist. I think that's my favorite right now. It's like a polka trash style, so the big, broad strokes with a lot of red paint-looking stuff on it. I think nice. uh, in terms of my archaeologically-oriented ones, um, I had a, a pair of trowels done up in an old-school uh, tattoo style by this guy, uh, Phil Baruf, who used to be at uh, Black Rose Tattoo in Tucson. He's, he's moved. I don't remember exactly where he's at now, but... And it's got uh, that quote from David Hurst Thomas on it. Uh, it's not what you find, it's what you find out. <laughs> and uh, 
that was I got that right before <clears throat> one of the SAA meetings. I don't remember which one exactly it was, but I was at the bar and uh Nieves Zedeno and uh Tim Pocketat were drinking there and Nieves ran up because there was a uh a session, you know, celebrating the career of David Hurst Thomas. And so she took a picture of my my nasty, uh, still oozing kind of scabby yeah. tattoo. <laughs> and that was the opening slide for her presentation in, uh, in his session. And I, I, I actually, I keep meaning to, to run into him and talk to him because I met him a couple of years before I actually got that tattoo. It was at a site I was excavating. And, uh, and, and ask him how uncomfortable it was to... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to find out that someone tattooed something he wrote on uh, on their body. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'd say. What uh, about you? Yeah, my favorite tattoo is uh, the one I have on my right arm. It's uh, the the octopus dragging down a a ship in stormy seas, and uh, for me, it's it's this thing that kind of encapsulates a lot of family history and you know stories of you know sailors during the age of exploration um you know had all of those fanciful sea monster stories um you know their way of kind of explaining away you know how sailors die at sea and stuff like that and you know kind of the fear of the unknown um but also my my favorite story attached to it is uh one of my earliest memories of fishing was with my dad and my grandfather, uh, and it was off of a pier in Monterey, California. And uh, there was a person fishing next to us, and uh, they start reeling in their line, <clears throat> and I see an octopus at the end of the line. And so this person, you know, lets the octopus down on the the deck of the pier, and the octopus gets itself off of the hook. And walks to the edge of the pier and dives off back into the water, you know, like many, many feet below. And it was one yeah. of those things that like as a young child, it was simultaneously really cool and super terrifying to see an animal like that smart. Uh, so it was just kind of one of those things where it's like I ever since I had thought about having a tattoo, I was like, yeah, it's got to be an octopus just because it's such a, a cool animal. They're really smart. They're pretty creepy. Um, and, uh, it's one of my earliest memories. It always makes me chuckle thinking about that octopus, just unhooking itself and being like, peace, I'm out. <laughs> well, uh, anything else you guys wanted to, uh, mention before we wrap it up? I don't think so. I mean, just to, to follow up with the comments we had in terms of people thinking about getting their first ones and, you know, moving into the, the discipline, or even if they're kind of embedded in the discipline is, uh, don't get them anywhere that's not easily covered up to begin with until you kind of have a, have a read on, on who you're working with. Yeah, that's good advice. Uh, I'd say the only thing I would add to that is uh, maybe get a tattoo during the off season so that you can take good care of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, that's a really good point when you're not going to be in the field or you're not going to have to um, – Cause you're not supposed to go swimming and stuff as well. So don't do it right before you go on vacation or something either. <laughs> yeah. And as always, you know, wear sunscreen anyhow, but especially, uh, on your tattoos. Actually, that's, uh, I always show people, uh, cause I wear a ton of sunscreen when I'm in the field. Um, and you know, in the Southwest, I actually usually have long sleeves on it and, and pants on anyways, but, um, I'll show them the difference even with sunscreen and, and, uh, a shirt between 
the bottom side of my uh, left sleeve, which has a lot of color in it, and the top side, and how uh, even with all that, there's a, you know it's pretty clearly bleached from the part that's facing the sun constantly. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, sun damage is a is a big issue, and and tattoos are expensive, so cover them up. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, uh, the last question before we call it a day is where can we find you guys online? Well, my Twitter is I don't dig dinos. Um, <laughs> I D O N T D I G D I N O S. Uh, and that seems to be getting some traffic. I'm also on academia as now I have to pull it up. Um, it's been a long time since I've actually looked at my own academia account. Um, that should be David E. Witt. So I'm oddly the, maybe not oddly, I'm the only Lewis Bork who's publishing stuff. So uh, and academia, if you just Google Lewis Bork, I'll, I'll pop up. And then for everything else, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and uh, uh, Twitter as the Tattooed Trowel. And I have a, a blog under that name as well. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast and uh, look forward to you know, chatting with you more. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, no, this was great. Thanks for listening to the Go to Go Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support so thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends colleagues classmates students teachers whatever uh, you can also find me online I'm very online uh, the blog is go dig a hole uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at go dig a hole